We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, continuing on in the sermon series that we've been doing this summer. Stand firm, for His grace is enough. We're reading chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and do it with respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We have been, these last few weeks, learning through Peter, taught to us through Pastor Ron, about how to live a winsome life, is the phrase that we've been using. Pastor Ron has been leading us through this series, and he's been sharing with us um, some of the words of Peter on how we might be, an example Pastor Ron used was how we might be a rock in the shoe of those around us. And Peter really gives us those instructions. He, he leads us through lots of different areas um, on how we're to be the rock in the shoe of those around us. He, he calls us to be winsome as citizens. He told us that we should respect those and submit to those that are in the governing authorities that are over us. He called us to be winsome as slaves in respect to submission to our masters. Last week, Pastor Ron showed us where he called wives to respect and be in submission to their husbands and husbands to be in submission to Christ. That we are to live winsome lives so that the work of Christ in us is seen by the world around us. And now we jump into chapter 3, starting in verse 8, and here we start to see That Peter is calling us to live a winsome life as a body of believers. These first instructions are, are for those of us that are believers that, that are a part of the church, 
these are instructions for all of us together. And here's the instructions that he gives us, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Five characteristics right here in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 8. That we are to have, to have, to live a winsome life as a body, as a group of believers, so that when people see us, especially as a, as a body, when someone outside this church would see us, they would know that Christ is at work in us. And this is not just a Richland church thing. This is a universal church, a church universal thing. Peter says, here's the things, here's the characteristics that you are to have so that when people see you, they know something is different there. Something is different in you than it is in the rest of the world. And they'll wonder what that is. So here's the characteristics he gives us right here in verse 8. He says we're to have unity of mind. That's where he starts. We are to have unity of mind. We are to be harmonious. We are not to be in conflict. We are to work together as a team. That sounds easy enough. That's a great way to start for us. And yet, I think we all know that that doesn't always happen exactly that way. Our church is, the church universal, our church too, it's made up of broken, unrighteous sinners who have been saved through Christ. And that brokenness pricks us and works in us and is seen in our relationships with one another. There are times when we are not always harmonious and we do not have a unity of mind. And that's especially true outside of our church, outside of the church. So Peter says, here's one way. As a body, here's one way as a group of believers that you will be seen as different than the world around you. Have unity of mind. In fact, Jesus, Jesus says towards the end of his life, towards the end of his ministry to his disciples, he says, now here's a new commandment. Here's something new that others won't understand and won't see and won't resonate with them. Here's a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, Jesus says. People will respond to that. They'll see that. Of unity of mind. Second thing he says is we're to have sympathy. We're to share the same feeling that someone else has. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. As a body of believers, we should we should gather around. We should feel what they feel. We should we should bond in that way. We should have sympathy for one another. One of the reasons that we're called to do that, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Again, the example of Christ is the one we're to follow here. He's not unsympathetic to us. He knows what we feel. He rejoices with us as we rejoice and mourns with us as we mourn. We're to have unity of mind. We're to have sympathy. We are to have brotherly love. Again, I think the idea here is that we are not just to have comradeship. We're not to be buddies. This is not the place to come to find your golf buddy. 
The body of believers is to have unselfish love and service towards one another. That this is the place, that this is the place to find brotherly love. We're also to have a tender heart. The the word that would have been used here would have been the idea of, of of a feeling that comes from our bowels, that deep inside of us, that every part of us should should have this feeling from the deepest innermost part. That we should be tender hearted towards one another. He also calls us to have a humble mind. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. This is how Peter would have summed up all of these. He would have wrapped them together and summed them up here. He would have tied them together with an essential and all-encompassing virtue of humility. Something that would not, that would not have been looked on favorably in the church society at this time, nor in our society now. In fact, in early parts of Christendom, people have claimed that the church world, that the church world was crazy or insane for inverting the values of society by claiming that the poor are strong and that they're really saints. Humility, humility does not come easily. It does not come. It does not come without heart change. And Peter, Peter is saying, these are the things you need to have. You need to have a unity of mind. You need to have a tender heart. You need to have brotherly love. You need to have sympathy. And you need to wrap all of that together with a humble mind. And then, after he lists those five things, Peter quotes to us from Psalm 34. He says, Whoever desires to love life, to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and to do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter follows Peter follows through the New Testament model that we see with, with Paul, that we even see in the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. The idea that all of Scripture is one story and the New Testament rests heavily on the Old Testament. And so Peter, as he's making his argument, as he's, as he's sharing with the, with the church their need for winsome lives, winsome as, as citizens, winsome as slaves, winsome as wives, as husbands, winsome as a church body, he shares all of that and then he sums it up with this, a quote from Psalm 34. And the reason, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that he does that is because the Bible would have been seen for sure, for sure to the church in Peter's time as totally 100% authoritative. That would have been the final nail in the coffin. That would have been the capstone to seal it up. So Peter would have gone through these statements. He would have gone through all of these uh, lists of, of advice on how to live winsome lives. And then he would say, okay, here we go. This comes from Psalm 34. Here's the end. Here's the capstone. Here's the final. Here's the final nail. It's settled. 
It's done. What I've said, he would say, relates exactly to what we read earlier in the Old Testament. It's all finished. It's complete. And then he says, in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? I think we can almost see the picture there. Peter's talked about winsomeness. He's talked about how to how to live as a church body and how to live as citizens and slaves and wives and husbands. And it's almost like he says, all right, we're all done. It's finished. If you're going to go after what's right and what's good, everything will be fine. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? We like that, don't we? I like that. As a parent... I like to say to my kids, if you just do what's right, everything will be fine. We like that. If you just do what's right, everything will be fine. And, and Peter comes to this point now, he's gone through all these lists, everybody, he's, he's, he's talked to everybody that's going to be a part of the church, and then he even talks to the church as a whole, and he says, if you just have these things, if you just have unity of mind and sympathy and a tender heart, if you just do all those things, Everything will be fine. You will be blessed. Life will go on and it will be perfect for everyone. If you're zealous for doing good, what harm is going to come to you? It's all done. And then we get to verse 14. But it's all finished. It's all done. But he has to throw a caveat in here. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It's all finished. Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? If you do what's right, you'll be fine. Except that you won't be fine. It's not going to be okay. In fact, as Peter's writing this, he knows that if the church follows all the instructions that he's already given, all the way through this book, all the way through this letter that he's writing, if if they follow all those instructions, it might not be okay. Even if they follow all these winsome, winsome rules, all these winsome lists of advice where they can show the light of Christ through them to the world around them, even if they follow them to a T, it might not be enough. It might not be okay. And that's why we jump into this but. But, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. What if winsome living is not enough? What if winsomeness is not Enough. Now the rest of the letter that, that we'll be going through in these next few weeks takes a turn right here. It takes a turn from here's the list of things that you can do to live a winsome life to here's some pointers for when winsomeness is not enough for when in all likelihood you will be persecuted when you will suffer, when you will have great harm probably that may be brought on your life here, is what you need to see and know now. Verse 14, 
changes everything. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. But if you're going to suffer, if you're going to suffer, Peter says, And he's speaking to the church that, as Pastor Ron shared with us, the history of, of the church here in Rome and of the leadership of Rome that would be against the Christians. It's just starting at this point in history. Persecution is just beginning. And it's about to be ramped up. It's about to go crazy. And people are going to suffer. Persecution is going to come no matter how winsome their life And he says, but when you suffer, when you are persecuted, when you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. Peter's not the only one in the New Testament to tell us that. James in chapter 1 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You will be blessed, James tells us, when you meet trials of various kinds. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Over and over in the New Testament, we are told that we will be blessed even in the face of persecution, even in suffering. We will be blessed. So our question is, how are we going to be blessed? And when will we be blessed? And Is it going to come as quickly as the suffering does? Will it be just as tangible for us? Will the blessing that we get be just as tangible for us as the suffering and persecution will be? That's really the question that we have. I think we can all sit here today and say, I understand that if I do what's right and I'm a believer and I follow after the teachings of Christ, that there will come a time when I suffer and I'm willing to take that suffering as long as as long as the blessing on the backside comes quick enough and is good enough and is real enough that it outweighs the suffering. We're to be blessed, Peter tells us. And then he says, here's how you're supposed to do it. Here's how. Verse 14, but you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake And then he says, but have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't fear, he says. Don't be afraid. Don't shy away from it. Fear shows lack of confidence, and you can have confidence in Christ. You can have confidence in the Word. You can have strength knowing where and who your foundation is found in. The Psalms, Peter might quote when he would say, 
waters might rage and the foam will come and the mountains will quake, but God is our refuge. Don't fear. Then he says, honor Christ as holy. Sanctify Him, some versions say. Set our hearts on Him. Don't be distracted by other things. Here's how you're going to deal with the persecution when it comes. Don't be tempted by other things. Don't be tempted by lesser gods. Don't let other idols get lodged in your heart. Set your heart on Christ. And then he says, Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to give a defense. Be prepared to share. Why is it that you can face persecution in this way? Why is it that you can face hardships in this way? This is the same word that Paul would have used uh, in, in Acts when he gives a defense of the gospel to King Agrippa. An apologetic here. Give a defense. Be ready to defend the truth that's alive in you. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. Ask questions. Seek answers. Be studious. And then Peter says, do it with a clear conscience. And do it with good behavior. Do it rightly. As you share it, share it with a clear conscience. Share it in a right way. And then he says to rely on God. That we should rely on God to open eyes so that they might see and know and understand. Be prepared to share why. Why you are different. Why as this persecution comes you're able to be a rock in the shoe or live a winsome life. Prepared to defend the truth that's alive and at work in you. What happens when winsomeness is not enough? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to not fear. We're supposed to be able to defend the truth. We're supposed to set our hearts and sanctify Christ. But a better question, maybe a bigger question that we might have, not just is the how, because we might be able to figure out hows. How are we to live a winsome life when winsomeness isn't enough and persecution comes? But the bigger question, the one that will keep us up at night, is not how, but why. I did everything right. I did what was right. And I was zealous for what is good. And yet harm still came to me. I did what was right. I did everything that I could do that I would know to be true and right. And yet, persecution still comes. Suffering still comes. And we might be able to figure out how to work through that and how to work around it. But the bigger question will be why. Why does it come? Why do I have to suffer? Peter answers that for us as well in this passage. He does it in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us back to God. That Christ also suffered. That's the why. How are we to deal with it? Defend the truth. Set our hearts on Christ. Don't fear. 
Why are we suffering? Well, it's because Christ suffered as well for us. For the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. So that we might be brought back to God. Christ died. Not just died, but was beaten, was crucified, was brutally tortured on our behalf. Christ suffered at the hands of men an unjust punishment that He did not deserve so that we might be brought back to God. So that the punishment that was rightly ours was put on Him. One commentator, John MacArthur, says in his commentary on First Peter, he says this, at the heart of the Gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ, who was perfectly righteous, died for the utterly unrighteous. He triumphed through that undeserving suffering by, as God has predetermined, providing redemption for the world. In that one event, God has His intentions fulfilled, and evil men also had their intentions fulfilled. The mystery of divine providence is that God is absolutely sovereign, but His rule and His predetermination is never apart from human responsibility. And the evil of man never reduces Him to a secondary cause. God is primary and providentially accomplishing every feature of His eternal will and His plan. Christ's perfect example of suffering unjustly and through accomplishing the glorious saving purpose of God gives believers hope and confidence for the triumph of God's purpose in the midst of their own suffering. Let me read that again. Christ's perfect example of suffering unjustly and through accomplishing the glorious saving purpose of God should give believers hope and confidence for the triumph of God's purpose in the midst of their own suffering. That God used the hands of men who were fulfilling their own purpose in brutally beating and torturing and crucifying Christ. God used that suffering so that the righteous might die for the unrighteous. So that He might bring us back to God. God used the brutal hands of men to accomplish the exchange of righteousness of Christ to us and for us. And He works all things together for good. What men intended for evil, God used for good. That's the hope that we have this morning. That's what we will celebrate here together at this table today. That God made a way for us as unrighteous to be made righteous through the brokenness of Christ. That on that day when men were having their way through the beating and torture and crucifixion of Christ, when their ends were met, the suffering of Christ produced a glorious result for us. God made He who had no sin to become sin for us that we might have the righteousness of Christ. That's what we celebrate together here at the table. We're going to do that together this morning. We're going to celebrate the brokenness of the body of Christ by men 
who thought they were meeting their own ends. We're going to celebrate the blood that was shed for us, for our sin, so that we may, might be made right. In your bulletins this morning, there is an invitation. You see it each month as we share together. It says this, For all who live in rebellion against God and unbelief, this holy food and drink will bring you only further condemnation. If you have, yet, if you have not yet cast the full weight of your hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ and now seek to live under His gracious reign, we ask you to abstain. Nevertheless, For those of you who have acknowledged your sin and affirmed your faith in the finished work of Christ, the promise is sure whoever eats my body and drinks my blood has eternal life and will not come into condemnation. You're invited to the sacred meal not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or the failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table. For it's given to us because of our weakness, because of our failures, in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As the Word has promised us God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of His unchangeable promise. So come, believer, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We're going to share this morning in communion together. We have open communion here at Richland. If you are here and can read that that statement and agree with it, you are welcome to have communion with us. We will serve you there in the pews. You're also welcome this morning to not share with us. If you don't understand what's happening or or are just uncomfortable with what's happening, we we're, we're respect that. And we don't want you to be a part this morning if you don't want to be a part. But we want to celebrate together the death of Christ that made a way for us, the righteous making a way for the unrighteous. And we want to remember this morning the suffering of Christ by the hands of men so that God's purposes would be fulfilled, knowing that our suffering, our suffering is worked by the same God so that we might have our sins forgiven. Some are going to come and help us to serve this morning. I'd encourage them to come as the worship team begins to play. represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which was beaten and broken by men for their own means but used by God on our behalf I invite you this morning to take it and hold it and we will take it together
bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life, and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace. Around the table of the King The body of our Savior Jesus Christ Torn for you And remember the wounds that heal, the death that brings us life. Paid the price to make us one. So we share in this bread of life, and we drink of his sacrifice. As a sign of our bonds of love Around the table of the King represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken by the hands of men for their own ends yet used by God for His for ours so that we may be made right so that we might have the righteousness that comes from Christ take and eat remembrance of that This represents the blood of Christ. Again, we ask you to take it and hold it, and we will partake together.
The blood shed for us, for our sins, so that we might be made right with God. Take and drink and remember. God, this morning we have have looked at a lot of things in, in this letter from Peter. Instructions on how we can be winsome in our lives as a body of believers. How we can can point to you, God, 
And God, we have looked at the possibility, in fact, the probability, maybe even the certainty, that even if we do all of those things right, suffering and persecution may still come. Even if we do everything, all the, if we follow all the commands, God, suffering may still be a part of our life. How can we have hope in that? We have hope because Christ suffered. And that suffering made a way for us. And the God who made the suffering of Christ become redemption for us will use our suffering to bless us, your word tells us that we will be blessed in our persecution. Help us to see that, God. Help us to begin to have eyes that understand it and see it and, and hearts that long for that. Lead us in that, God, and guide us. Go with us from this place this morning knowing that You, God, work all things together for good. Even what men intend for evil, you use for good. And we can rest in that promise today. So strengthen us. Your grace is more than enough. And so we rest in you. We pray these things this morning in your name. Amen. Thank you this morning for coming.